Uh, well, this Christmas season, we are focusing our attention upon one verse. John chapter 1 and verse 14. Uh, this one verse really tells us of the Christmas story. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when you tie this verse to verse 1, which speaks about, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So when the Word came and dwelt among us, this was God coming and dwelling among us. Um, one of the things I emphasized last week was how His dwelling is like a tent. And, and very much so it is. Uh, the, the word to dwell means that He tented. Sometimes people translate this verse, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and tented among us. Um, but but there's, even, there's even a, a, a different picture. Sometimes people view that tent, not, not like we have here of a Bedouin tent, um, but sometimes people have even seen that as the tent, meaning the tabernacle. You know, the, the Old Testament tent that they, they used to pick up to worship in the wilderness. They go from one place to another, to another, to another, which was just like a tent, but maybe a bigger tent. And what's particularly appropriate about the tabernacle, so sometimes people translate this, that he tabernacled among us, is that you think about the tabernacle. What was special about the tabernacle? Is the glory of God came down on the tabernacle and dwelt among men in that way. And so as you think about John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us like God among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see in this tabernacle then the glory of God coming down, and that's what we're going to see this morning. Here at this Christmas time, we have been taking this verse, John 1, 14, during the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and we've looked at the four words uh, in John 1, 14. They're right there in red for you. He became flesh and dwelt among us. We looked at flesh last week. We saw how Jesus dwelt with us as a man, and we experienced, we, we thought about how his human experience was, was just like ours, physically facing the pains and difficulties uh, that we faced, and emotionally facing the emotions that we face, and socially dealing with other people, like in every way he was like us. Well, this morning we're looking at Jesus dwelling with us in glory, like the, the tabernacle. Next week will be grace, and the week after that will be truth, and as we we think about last week and this week, it's kind of like the flip side. Like, like last week was humanity dwelling in flesh among us, but, but this will emphasize more his divinity and his deity, just uh, we seeing his glory among us. His humanity was very much like us, his glory was very much unlike us, and we'll see that in the fact of John, of how he does things that we could never do. That is, he performs signs and miracles and all these signs in the book of John are revolving around himself, revealing his glory. And so this week, like last week, like the next couple of weeks, we're going to take this word glory and really trace it through the gospel of John, just like we, we chose our themes last week of uh, the becoming in flesh. And so the my message this morning is that he dwelt among us in glory. And by way of outline, we're just going to look at these different signs that that uh, John records for us. And we have, by the way, just a, a lot of ground to cover. You can open your Bibles to the, the Gospel of John. We're just going to read lots of Bible today 
as we read through these miracles. A lot of them, we're just going to let them speak for themselves as we think about these signs because they show His glory. Let's look at the first sign. It's found in, in John chapter 2. We see how Jesus turned the water into wine in the wedding of Cana of Galilee. We looked at it last week through the lens of His humanness, but we look at it now through his, the lens of the glory of Jesus. I'm calling this good wine because that's what it is. It's, it's good wine. I want to begin reading in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, there's lots here we don't know about this wedding. We don't know where exactly, what building the wedding took place, on the east side, west side, north of town, or wherever it was. We don't know uh, how big this wedding was. We don't know even who the bride and groom were. Um, there's some speculation that they were relatives of Mary, which, which could be. It's, it's reasonable, but we, we don't know. But John gives us the only details we need to know. He gives us enough, and, and that's that Mary was there, and that Jesus and his disciples were invited, and they were there at the, the wedding feast. At this point, John had identified four of these disciples. Back in chapter 1, you had Andrew and Peter, and you had Philip and Nathaniel, and we can assume that they were at the wedding as well, maybe some of his other 12. We, we don't exactly sure know, but we assume that the, the wedding went well. We assume the reception went well until... Till what happened? Kids, what happened? They ran out of wine. That kind of destroyed the spirit of the wedding, murmuring, well, they have no wine. What, what's going to happen? Are we going to shut this place down or what? And Mary heard of it. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's really an interesting exchange here between a, a mother and a son. Mary knew that Jesus had the power to solve this problem. And Jesus, though, appears reluctant. But when his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, then Jesus was willing to solve the problem at hand. He did so in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Trust you can see why I label this point good wine. Because when Jesus makes wine, he makes what? He makes good wine. Um, it's the point of, of verse 10, right? When the master of the feast confronts the bridegroom, he served the wine in the wrong order. Usually it's the good wine that comes first and not last like he did. In other words, he was saying... Remember all that wedding planning that you did? You and your bride sat there and you planned for hours and hours and hours who's going to come and what everything's going to be like. Well, buddy, you messed up. You messed up. Now, I suspect the bridegroom wasn't too interested at this point to hear this rebuke at this time because he was far more interested in the bride and the reception than he was about the details of the ceremony, of the reception. 
But here it is. This is the first sign that John records for us. And so he tells us in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, the significance of this verse, verse 11, is really twofold. First of all, it connects what John records for us with the the glory of Jesus. It, It connects the signs with the glory. Look at it. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifests his glory. He manifests his glory through the signs. Like we see in John 1, 14, that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And the glory of Jesus shown mostly through what it is that he did. If you think about the sign, it was miraculous. Uh, verse 6 speaks about these six stone water jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. There are six of them times 20 to 30. right? gives you about 120, 100, maybe 150 gallons of wine. And, and Jesus made this wine without doing anything, all aged and all perfect and called good. He, he, didn't, he didn't pull up his cart from whatever that he had taken from uh, from Nazareth, where he came from, and and had this big thing, and then brought them out back and poured it in, and kind of did some hocus pocus magician style. He didn't do that. He said, "You fill it with water," and then when it came, it, it came wine. He didn't wave his hand, didn't touch it in any way. He simply willed the water to become wine, and it shows the glory of Jesus. Now, the second significance of verse eleven is that it connects signs with belief. As we go through these signs, I'm going to bring this out particularly. Just see how the sign is given and how it connects with belief. His disciples then believed in him. The signs were given to induce faith. In fact, that's the entire purpose of, of the Gospel of John. You can turn over in chapter 20, John chapter 20, and verse 30 and 31. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you. If it's electronic, highlight this verse. If it's in paper, write a box around this verse. This is why John wrote... And you need to sift everything that John wrote through these two verses. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John didn't include all the the miracles of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke show a lot of miracles that Jesus didn't even record, but He selectively chose these specific signs to record that that you might believe. See, the signs were recorded that you might believe in the signs, not believe in the signs, but believe in the glory of the one who does the signs, believe in Christ, and that by believing then you might have life in his name because eternal life comes through faith in him. As John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And really my hope this morning is that we would all be believing. We'd all be trusting. That that we would all, so we present the signs of Jesus and you see them, that we would see and embrace and have them and hold them. And and maybe it leads you to new in faith. Maybe some of your kids particularly, maybe for those of you who have walked in faith for many, many years, just continues to solidify you. As you see the glory of Jesus. And we're going to go through all these signs. Now, we've got a lot to go through. We have... uh, Six or seven more to go through of these signs. And I just want to overwhelm you with the, the divinity and the glory of Jesus that you just see it and say, wow, what a wonderful Savior it is that we have. So I want to move on to the second sign. It's found in chapter 4. And I'm calling it Fever Gone. 
And I trust you'll see why I'm calling it that. I want to read in verse 46, right at the end of the chapter. So he came again to Canaan and Galilee where he had made the water wine. So he came back to the second place, the place where he was. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's connecting signs with with belief. And uh, the official said to him, verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour where he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, again, there you see at the end of the story in verse 54, we see this the second sign that Jesus did. This sign was a, a sign of, of healing. Jesus healed the son of an official. Now, Jesus didn't seek this healing like the first one. Right? Mary came to Jesus on the first one. Again, this son, this official's son was sick, and he came to Jesus. And this official had uh, walked some 25 miles or so from Capernaum to Cana about his day's journey to see Jesus. And um, he came because his son was sick at the point of death, like verse 47 says. He came because he heard Jesus was in Cana. He came because he knew that Jesus could cure his son. And he came because he was desperate. And you can see this in the way that he deals with, with Jesus. There's only one thing on his mind. He wants his child healed, but he knows that Jesus needs to come to Capernaum in order to have this child healed. In verse 47, we see that he asked him to come down and heal his son. For he's at the point of death. And then Jesus speaks about signs and the relationship with belief. Unless you see signs, you will will not believe. But the father ignores this because he's got one thing on his mind. He wants Jesus to go back to Capernaum to heal his child. And he says in verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. That focus is a demonstration of his desperation. He's got one thing on his mind. Is that his son would be healed. And he knew there's one person who could heal him. And that was Jesus, if he would simply but come to his house. And Jesus did one better. He simply said, verse 50, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed even before he saw the end of the sign, which is true faith, if you will, because he believed what Jesus said. And then when he returned home, there was this, this interaction between he and his servants. He found out the fever left him. He found out it was the very hour that Jesus said, your son will live, and uh, he believed. And we even read further that he believed, and all his household, that includes the master of the house, all the the children in the family, all the servants in the family, this is a a big, lots of people believed at this story of the sign of Jesus, that is the glory of Jesus. They could heal this boy whom he never met from a distance in another town, 25 miles away, just by saying the word. Such is the glory of Jesus. He dwelt among us in glory. The next sign comes in chapter 5, just the the next verse. I'm calling this fresh legs. I trust you'll see why I'm calling it that. Verse 1. 
And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then the ESV um, excludes verse 4 because there's a a textual manuscript difference here that speaks about... uh, uh, when the angel stirs the water, they want to get in and get healed. But like all textual variants, it doesn't change the meaning at all. Um, then he begins in verse 5 again. One man who was there, who had been an invalid for 38 years, <clears throat> when Jesus saw him lying there, and knowing they had been there for a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? And, and the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And there's that story about when the angel stirs the water, right? You you go down and you first went in, and he was too slow because he was an invalid. He couldn't quite get down there. He was seeking healing in this pool. But true healing comes from Jesus, which we see in verse 8. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And over and over, you see the same thing. You see the glory of Jesus. He can heal by a word, by just saying the word. Now, you'd think that this sign might bring some to faith, and uh, perhaps it did. In some regard, it does. But the next paragraph shows that many didn't believe. Now, that day was the Sabbath, and there was the big problem. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them and said, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a a crowd in that place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was breaking the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we see these signs in John, right? They they don't always lead to faith. Sometimes they lead to antagonism. Right? They, they lead to hostility. Um, and it's interesting here, as we shall see with the, the blind man, um, is the Pharisees are religious elite don't discount the miracle. They don't deny what's happened. Instead, they turn and they hate Jesus because of what happened. And, and, and they don't believe. And here their technicality is on the Sabbath. Right? Their, their view of the Sabbath was so big that it dwarfed even their understanding of, of grace and mercy. We'll see next week as we look at grace. Well, we, we even see the, the Sabbath later. Right? Well, let's move on. We've seen good wine, fever gone, fresh legs, and now we come to a free lunch. I like this one. Kids, you might, might stomach might start turning right now if you think about your free lunch. After this, Jesus went away to the other side, chapter 6, verse 1, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, And a large crowd was following him. Here it is. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
And here's John's way of saying that there are these other signs, right? He did the, the, the water and the wine, to the wine in, in Cana of Galilee, and then he did these signs of healing, um, right? Taking the fever from this boy and then giving this man who was, who was an invalid to help him walk. But it doesn't mean the only healing that Jesus was doing. Other gospels record other healings just even at this time. You, you can chase some of those down. And, and I could list them for you, but that's, that's not the purpose. The purpose here is the large crowd saw healings, particularly these two, maybe more, and they were following Jesus. And so we pick up the story in verse 3. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now there's a common but true statement. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Some politicians seem to think so, but that's really not the case. Because somewhere, someone has paid for that lunch. It may be free to you, but it wasn't free to someone else. But if ever there was a free lunch, this is the free lunch. Because Jesus didn't pay for the lunch. He made the lunch. He didn't have to buy the supplies for the lunch. He just made the lunch. And, and the people then filled on fish and bread as much as they wanted. Even you see that in uh, verse 11. As much as they wanted, they ate. And verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, like, like they, were, they, they were filled. They, did, they didn't desire any more. You know, when you reach that point when you're, you're saturated with your food, you, you don't want any more because you're all done. That's the point that they reached. And then he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up. And filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign, there it is, that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now it looks like the people believed, right? They, they saw the sign and they believed. Well, it doesn't say that, right? But it, but it says that he's the prophet. This is, this is the prophet who had come. We'll see a little later, like we saw last week with the feeding of the 5,000. They they, they didn't really believe they were following Jesus for the food. But before we get there, we see another sign in verse 16 through 21. When Jesus walked on water, I'm calling this the wet walk. Because this was the walk that he's on his water. No doubt, water splashed up onto his feet and his sandals. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing. You just picture... a how blowing it is and rough. And when they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Really, it's an amazing story that, that Jesus could walk on water. Not just the calm water, but the rough water that's really going up and down. And he could walk on that as well. Have you ever tried that? 
I know if you've ever been to a swimming pool, kids, right? And, you, and, and you're walking along, and here's the edge. And right in here, imagine you guys are all swimming, okay? You're all wading in the pool down there. I'm up here on the... And you just kind of walk along, right? You ever done this before? And you walk, and then you go... And your legs, you know, you keep going like this. I've never kept on walking. I've always just shoop, sunk right down when I've done that. I've tried running, right? You, you start running, and you keep running, and you just go right down into the water. You can do it, Thatcher. If, oh, one step. Okay. Jesus took more than one step. He, he walked a couple miles on the water. And um, Jesus demonstrated his glory in so doing. And then there was another miracle that he got in the boat and immediately they were to the shore. It's like right, right they were there. I'm not sure if that was like immediate transport as well. Whatever Jesus was doing, there's another sign. Now, there is, there is some discussion about whether this really is a sign or not because it's not lacked with belief and faith like all the other signs are. I, I don't know. I just include it because I did. But let's get back to the bread. Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there, and the disciples had not entered the boat, that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so here we kind of see fixing... Mixing in the sign, well, he walked across the sea. They acknowledged that miracle about what he, what he did, but then he's pushing it back to his faith in the, in the signs. Uh, you, you, you didn't believe in the sign. You didn't believe in my power. You just believed because I gave you a free lunch, and you wanted your free lunch. And in fact, even they, they asked then, verse 34, for more bread after Jesus talks to them. He says, sir, give us this bread always. When he's talking about the true bread that comes from heaven. And Jesus, like we saw last week, offered himself. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. But, but they didn't want that. They didn't want Jesus, right? They, they wanted bread. And uh, so you see the fact there that they, they wanted the miracle for themselves rather than seeing the one to whom the miracle points, which is Jesus. And eventually, as we saw last week in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And that, again, is the sad reality of the glory of Jesus, that some will see the signs of Jesus and embrace him and believe in him. Others will see the signs, misinterpret them, want only the blessings instead, not believe them, reject him, walk away. But John wrote that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that's really my hope and prayer this Christmas season as we go through these, that, that you see, indeed see Jesus come in the flesh and see his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, chapter 9, we see the same things. I'm calling it opened eyes. We've seen good wine and the, the fever gone, fresh legs, free lunch, the wet walk, and now we got opened eyes. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Actually, a good question. Because many times um, babies were born blind back then who had sexually transmitted diseases. And as the baby went out, 
of the birth canal, they would be blind. They said, well, is it the mother in sin? Or was it the baby in sin? Or what was it? But Jesus corrected them. He says, verse 3, it's not that the baby, that this man sinned or his parents. It wasn't because of sin of them particularly that caused this. It's not a tick for tat, not causality. But he was born blind that I might come years later that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day for night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this sign is different than all the others, that Jesus merely didn't say, see, look, open your eyes, see, rather he, he stooped down and he, he like spit on the mud, maybe grabbed just a little bit of mud and spit on it and got it going and, and just, you know, it takes probably a lot of spit, but he's got this, this mud and then he places it on the man's eyes and it says, you go and you wash. And the miracle, miracle took place as he was walking away. He went and washed and came back seeing. This amazing thing that this man born blind is healed with a touch. Now, I have no idea why this miracle is different than the other miracles, why he, why he touched this man, why he didn't touch the others. I have no idea. People look for the significance of that. I'm not sure there is significance. Maybe there is. But the, the amazing thing is then the conversation that continues after this sign has been performed because it shows the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. Because they, they launch an investigation into, into this man. Was he really born blind? So verses 8 and 9, they, they talk with his neighbors. Is this the man? Well, we, we think it was. No, no, it wasn't. He just looks like him. And, and then they bring him in, in verse 9 through 17, and they, they talk with him. Are you born blind? And back and forth and back and forth. And then they're not satisfied because they want contrary evidence. They're, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in trying to find evidence so as to convict him as wrong or find some error in the argument. Verse 18 through 23, he's talking with his parents. His parents basically said, well, well, go ask him. They knew it was his son, their son, but they didn't ask because they were fearful they would be kicked out of the synagogue, as verse 22 says. So let's pick it up, verse 24. It's one of the, one of the funniest conversations, one of the saddest conversations, one of the most ironic conversations in the Gospel of John. So for the second time, they called this man, verse 24, who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he, and he answered, let's talk about Jesus. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I know is that I was blind, but now I see. He was born blind, been blind for many, many years. And Jesus touched him. He had no idea who Jesus was, touched him. He says, now I, I see. And they said to him, what did you do? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want also to become his disciples? And there's irony of ironies, right? They're, they're trying to see the sign, trying to debunk the sign, trying to demonstrate something wasn't true because they didn't want to believe the sign. They didn't want to follow Jesus. At this point, they turned. You can see their anger. They reviled him, verse 28, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciple of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why this is an amazing thing. 
You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. This guy's theology is good, well, from their, according to their theology. He's accurately representing what they were saying. God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, he does his will, and God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They did not like it. Just wanted to get rid of him. And nowhere in the Gospel of John do you see the divide so clear between those who, who see the signs and believe and those who see the signs and see all the evidence and refuse to believe it and reject it. And really, whenever the Gospel is preached, whenever Christ is put forth to people, you always see one of those two responses. People are either going to believe it or they're, they're not going to I think about Acts that we read a few months ago in Acts chapter 17. And you see this also in chapter 13 is the same way. In chapter 2 is the same way. So just thinking through the, the, the book of Acts. Just, by the way, I'm going to begin preaching through in a couple months from now. It's kind of why we've been reading through Acts. Maybe when we get done of Acts, reading through it on Sunday mornings, we'll, we'll be preaching through it. But um, always this response. The gospel is preached and you have some who believe and you have others who disbelieve and are hostile. And whether that's in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, many believed, and yet many of the religious leaders were against them, to Mars Hill and the Areopagus, where there are some who believed, and some were in the middle there, but some were antagonistic towards him and against him. And you see that in Thessalonica, and you see that in Corinth, and you see that every place he went, you always have some believe and some don't. And my hope for you this morning is that you're part of those who believe, that you would not reject Jesus like the Pharisees remain skeptical and the face of clear evidence. Well, let's, let's continue on. Chapter 11, new eyes, new life, rather, new life. This is the story of Lazarus. We looked at the story last week, considered Jesus in his humanness, as verse 35 said, which I trust you kids memorize this week. It says, Jesus wept. Uh, you know that verse pretty well, right? He joined with us in our emotions, and then that leads up to this. And for the sake of time, we're just going to begin at verse 38. Um, because, right, to, to bring up to speed, Jesus came to Bethany. He heard Lazarus was sick, waited a few days, waited for him to die, came to Bethany, met Martha, met Mary, he wept, and now, verse 38, we get to the details of what happened. Then Jesus, deeply moved again in his humanness, just emotionally moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Any have a King James here at this point? Anyone read King James? What does it say, Josiah? Behold, he stinketh, right? He's got an odor. All right. And um, let's see, we, we pick it up here. Verse 40, Jesus said, Did I not tell you? That if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. And there it is, Jesus believing, glory of God, these signs, it's all linked together. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Here it is, this sign that he's going to do. I'm doing this so that they might believe in the glory that's manifested through me of you, and might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! 
And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face unwrapped with a, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, "Unbind him and let him go." You know how Lazarus came out, right? <laughs> he was a monopod. He was coming out because he was bound hands and foot. And they unwrapped him, and behold, it was a great display of the glory of Jesus, that he's able to raise people even from. The dead. And he's showing, therefore, in verse 25, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There's the eternal life that he's talking about. You'd be able to raise someone from the dead. Now, one would think that such miraculous signs, certainly all would believe, right? To see someone raised from the dead who's been in the tomb four days and comes hopping out like that. And again, we see the same thing. Some believe and some don't. Look down at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. It was causal because of being raised from the dead, Lazarus was. Because of that, he, they believed. But, verse 46, on the flip side, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Oh, such a bad thing. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. This guy is doing the miraculous. It's amazing what this man is doing. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. It's like, that's the point of John, right? Signs is what he did so as to bring people to faith. And they say, if he keeps doing these signs, people are going to come to faith. But we can't have that. Because if that happens, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These signs which were meant to induce faith often have the opposite effect when the sign is clear, even when the purpose of the sign is clear. Right? There's antagonism against that. And I think about Caiaphas, who, who gets it exactly right, but gets it exactly wrong. This is the irony. It's so great in John. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Let's kill this man because if he dies, our whole nation will be okay. Because if he dies, the Romans won't come. But if he lives, the Romans are going to mess everything up. So we've got to kill him to save our nation. And and that's exactly then, ultimately, that was dead, that was done, is because Jesus died then, providing redemption for all those who believe. But of course, Caiaphas wasn't talking about that. It says in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. God using the mouth of an unbeliever, just like he used the mouth of a donkey, just like he can use lives and mouths of unbelievers all around us to direct us in his way. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They raised Lazarus, the greatest miracle, the greatest sign of them all. And their hostility was the greatest. Well, finally, this is the eighth sign. We're going to sum it up with this, raised up. Of course, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the signs of John. Now, you might be turning to the end, but I want you to turn back to the beginning. Turn back to John chapter 2, because it's here where we see clearly that 
that this is one of the signs. John chapter 2 tells a story of the, the cleansing of the temple. And then, after making a whip and driving out the money changers, the Jews came to him, verse 18, and, and said this. And what sign do you show us for doing these things? So they're asking for this sign. And Jesus in chapter 2 then gives them this, the greatest of all signs. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And just like Nicodemus, who thought that he was talking about physical birth, a physical temple, they thought he was talking about this, this physical temple. But he's talking about the temple of his body. We'll see that. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Right? You destroy my body, you destroy my temple, my tabernacle that has the glory among you. You destroy that, in three days I will rise from the dead. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the sign that Jesus would give, the sign of the resurrection. So let's turn over to chapter 20 and just relish in the, the resurrection before we wrap up things this morning. The first ten verses, we find the tomb empty, worthy to be read, but for the sake of time, we're going to skip those. We're going to come down to when Jesus appears. We see Jesus first appearing to Mary. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, weeping because the body of Jesus was was not there. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head of the feet, and uh, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus playing coy, like I'm sure he he loved to do. This is a a prank, if you will, sort of, in the reverence of the moment, just kind of seeing what's, what's going on. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, right, the gig is up, Mary. And she turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. And there's the first appearance of Jesus to Mary. And then we see the other appearance that that, uh, Darren referred to this morning on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they... They saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. There is the great commission in John's gospel. And as God has sent me, so I'm sending you out into the world. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withhold, it is withheld. And... Um, Stephen there is speaking about him going forth, them going forth in the power of the Spirit, the power that they have just to discern spiritually about forgiveness. And then we see again this, this, this great thing, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Missed that. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, he got his chance. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, as he had said earlier in verse 19. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And there you see the sign of the resurrection and the push to believe. And then Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God, worshiping Jesus as God incarnate, Christmas dwelling among us, seeing his glory. And then verse 29 comes to us. Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. None of us have seen the risen Christ. We've not seen him. And so we're not like Thomas. We can't touch him, but we have the promised blessing that if we believe in him, we are blessed because we've not seen him, but yet we do believe, and, and believing and trusting in these signs. And, and so it also teaches us that, that being there may, may not have been just a, a, such a great advantage that people often think. We think, oh, well, well, if I would have been there, I would have done this. Well, maybe not so. But now that in retrospect, we look back and we have the scriptures, we see and understand this <coughs> abounding proof, we can see and we can believe. So I just press you this Christmas season to believe and trust in Jesus, the word that dwelt among us. So let's pray. Father, I pray that these four words would sink deep into our heart as we just take them slowly. Uh, Jesus dwelling in flesh and dwelling among us in glory. And next week, dwelling among us in grace. And then the week after that, dwelling among us in truth. Father, I pray that we would embrace all of these things And we'd realize the wonders of Christmas. God, I pray for the glory of Jesus to have shown um, in my preaching that it would shine brightly in our hearts, that it would shine in our small groups as we talk about these things tonight. And God, that that we would um, truly rejoice and believe and trust in this Jesus, this this God-man, the one who's filled with glory and manifested to us. What a glorious time Christmas is because it brought your glory into earth through Jesus. And in that we rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.